You're listening to Where We Are, a weekend conversation on faith, politics, family, and culture, hosted by me, Michael Ware, and my wife, Melissa. We bring our wide-ranging experiences in politics, ministry, and nonprofit life to bear as we discuss the issues of the day. On this week's episode, uh, we'll be updating our GOP primary rankings, talking about the debate, and giving you an update on the Center for Christianity and Public Life's inaugural summit that took place this last week, and of course, pasta rankings. You're listening to Where We Are. You're listening to Where We Are. We are the Where's. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. And Melissa, uh, we we made it through like the busiest season of the year. We for made us. it through. We made it through, and uh, we're uh, still married. Still married. We're uh, grizzled. <laughs> like the revenant up in here <laughs> you just find me cocooned inside of a horse <laughs> <laughs> um but uh we uh, we wrapped up our the first class of the center for christianity and public life's uh, public life fellows yeah they're all really cool they're, they're cool amazing people. people we but we wrapped up that class now, thankfully, we have an alumni program, and uh, these folks are hopefully going to be a part of the, the life of CCPL moving forward, but there is still a kind of the nine-month program is over. A little melancholy. Over. A little melancholy. A little bittersweetness. Uh, and then they, they stayed through. All of our fellows uh, had a speaking role at our inaugural summit. Which was amazing. It turned out really well. I mean, you're, you're a team of three, and you pulled off an entire summit. It was great. We had an amazing event coordinator. Shout out Whitney Tran, who's like the best ever. Um, yeah, she's really talented. She's exceptional. But um, summit was amazing. 35-plus speakers, cha- Senate chaplain Barry Black, two United States senators, Gary Haugen of IJM, Pulitzer Prize finalist Elizabeth Brunig, The Washington Post, uh, Christine Emba, Reverend Eugene Cho of Bread for the World, Michael Sakasis uh, over at the Christian Study Center in Gainesville. I mean, just could go. Jason ha- DeParle at the New York Times, Anne Philippic of Share Our Strength. I mean, it was you just, had it was USAID so wonderful. Administrator Samantha Power send out a video. She did. She did. Uh, naming CCPL. It was awesome. It was. Great. I love her. She's my shiro. Yeah. Um, it, it was. It was exceptional. And so, for those of you who were there, uh, I'm so glad that you took the time. Uh, we will hopefully be making an announcement soon regarding if, whether, when the 2024 summit will be. And so no promises there except for that there will be an announcement hopefully by the end of the year. Um, but I'll tell you, there were some amazing talks. Mm-hmm. Senator Chris Murphy of mm-hmm. Connecticut. Yes. He he brought it. Yeah, he was excited about being there. And he brought a fully thought out, fully fledged speech. It it was 
it's the first talk that we have been able to release. You could go to our YouTube channel and see uh, see the full speech from Senator Murphy. Uh, let's just say like he did not phone it in. Uh, I don't agree with every jot and tittle of what he said in the speech, uh, but it was a robust case for the role of churches in uh, addressing and stemming and reversing the crisis of belonging and loneliness that we have. Um, and it, I think uh, what I heard over and over again, both specifically regarding Senator Murphy's speech, but also the summit generally, was just how refreshing it was. Mm -hmm. How refreshing it was to hear talks that weren't immediately placed in a political binary mm -hmm. that weren't um, that weren't uh, that weren't motivated by some sort of uh, huge political uh, agenda, but were actually considering Christian resources, what they have to offer to our public life, and issues like child hunger, like AI, uh, that Christians need to, ought to, not just care about, but but contribute to. Um, yeah, the, the politics that he did in his speech was actually speaking to his own side. He said, I need to speak to progressives with this speech, which speaking to your own side takes a whole other kind of posture and approach and mentality and yes. humility. Yeah. It doesn't happen a lot, and it was really um, refreshing to see him say, I think progressives can do better on this Yeah, several different times. Yeah, it was, it was a sounding... Uh, Senator Chris Coons was also with us. Similarly, I thought his... Humility. Uh, it, uh, for those who don't know, Senator Chris Coons uh, is is a, a devout Christian, uh, Yale Div, uh, and a Yale Div grad. Uh, he spoke quite movingly about, you know, a lot of times, like it's easy to be like, you know, I want to reach across the aisle and like, so I worked with Mitt Romney or like, and that's good. That's a, but I like Chris Coons raised some of the more difficult members on the other side of the aisle and how he felt convicted about how he approached and thought about them in, in a way that I, I took to be pretty, pretty transparent. Um, it's the other interesting thing Coons said was, uh, so Senator Chris Coons is the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was very interesting. Senator Schumer called him earlier that day and Senator Coons told Schumer that he was taking a walk and praying uh, yep. when Schumer was asking him about he didn't say explicitly I had to imagine it was it was related to Israel or Ukraine um, and, and so so that was that was a, a really really moving set of remarks so uh, we will be releasing content from the summit to some extent, in the coming weeks, in the coming months, uh, we're going to have a recap video that'll be up early next week. I'm excited about that. Um, but but yeah, it was it was really wonderful. And and for those who again who were able to be with us there in person, I'm so glad, so glad you were. And so Melissa, now it's like the book seems so far away, but now that we're past the summit, like the the spirit of our politics comes out in like two months. Uh, uh, so it just, it's just, uh, 
feels like another stretch there, but I'm I'm excited. I'm I'm ready for this book to come out now. Yeah, me too. And uh, you opened up the conference, the summit, with a lot of fodder from your book, and I kept on getting reactions from people saying. You know, does Michael say this anywhere else? Is this recorded? What he said was so good. And I was like, actually, <laughs> I felt like a little marketing gimmick going, it's actually all from his book, just so you're aware. So you were getting amazing feedback. And it just, I'm just so ready for everybody to finally read this thing that we've been talking about ad nauseum for months. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. Uh, it's coming so soon. It's coming very soon. And uh, we'll be. I have a bunch of speaking confirmed that we just haven't put on the calendar yet, and so we'll be uh, in, like the on on the website, uh, and so yeah, that'll Michael be Weir. exciting uh, to to let folks know when I'm going to be in their neck of the woods. But California, Illinois, Richmond, Virginia, Baltimore, D.C., uh, Nashville, Austin. So I'm going to be sort of. All, all over all yeah. over the country uh, early next year. All right. Well, hey, let's let's jump. So right after the summit, uh, we we had a Republican debate. Yeah, we watched five candidates on stage. Five candidates on stage. So it was Christie, Tim Scott, Scott. Senator Tim Scott, Vivek, uh, DeSantis, and Haley. That's right. And then of course Donald Trump, the front runner. Uh, was was not there, uh, and so I, you know, honestly, I don't feel like a debate recap is necessarily uh, worthwhile. I mean, the debate the debate was interesting in that basically the first hour was focused on foreign policy. Yes, um, which isn't surprising. Which, well, isn't surprising given <laughs> given everything given that's times. happening in the news. Um, still, it's a lot of foreign policy for a, for a primary It's a debate. lot of foreign yeah, policy yeah, yeah. when most folks aren't... I mean, quite a few folks vote on national... I think now Nash, more people are... Vote on national in, security, yeah. especially when foreign policy is presented more as national security. You get people who vote in a higher percentage on that issue. I think it could possibly be there at the top of, of Iowans' minds when they're caucusing this January. But... I think you noticed immediately, I noticed immediately that once again, we had five candidates on stage with one candidate choosing not to attend for a third time who is, who is just running away with the numbers in the polling still. And he's not, he, there weren't, it, he wasn't a topic for those candidates to say, hey, you know, here's my best case for why I'm better than that front runner. And it's just, yeah, I yeah. I continue to be baffled. Yep. Now, you know, so I'll say, I mean, I wrote and I, I said that I thought this debate it was an important was an important one for turning attention towards towards Trump, uh, and you know, they, they they didn't do that. I mean, I guess. Compared to like the first debate, I bet you there was an increase of mentions, but it still wasn't the focus to be sure. I think the alternative argument is, you know, these campaigns are looking at 
the fact that there are going to be a number of additional debates before Iowa even votes. And so for them, I think there there is just a real hesitancy to uh, to sort of use whatever they have against Trump before whatever arguments they want to make before the field winnows further. We've obviously seen significant winnowing uh, even since the last debate. We only had five candidates on the debate stage. I think it's an interesting question whether uh, we may see further winnowing before the next debate on, I think it's December 6th. Yeah, it's December 6th, and it's in Miami. And so... Uh, oh, no, no, I'm so, sorry. This last one was yeah, in Miami. Yeah. Sorry, Alabama. Yeah, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And so, um, you know, they are, I, I, it is sort of for me getting to the, getting to the point of, uh, waiting for a shoe to drop, but you're the shoe. Like, you know, like Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, you're the shoe that needs to, that needs to drop. And so I guess we'll just wait and see if December 6th is the moment or, you know, the, the, uh, a debate in January, but like they can't just turn the conversation to Trump three weeks out from Iowa. Like like this, this needs time and you need to give voters time. It's not fair to voters to just give them two, three weeks to process, you know, something approximating like a holistic argument. And so, um, but, but Trump is, Again, 20, 30, 40, 45 points ahead nationally. He's 20, uh, 25, 30 points ahead in Iowa. And so, but let's let's turn to the rankings and that'll give us a bit of an opportunity to, yeah, maybe bring up some some more from the debate and okay. also sort of set set sort of where we are. I okay. think yeah. So how many did you rank this month? Six. Six. Okay. Yeah, I did you six. You ranked six. That makes sense. Yeah, I did six. At the bottom, uh, uh, Chris Christie. Yep. Um, I think he could be ranked higher if he was the... If he was showing up as, you know, the number two in New Hampshire. Yeah. Which is what he seems to be, you know, seems to be really like... You know, running running hard in New Hampshire, but it seems like seems like Haley's overtaking the moderate it's, sort of lane. It seems like it. And so because of that, it would still be a long shot anyways, but because Haley is sort of taking over the moderate wing, it it, it really uh doesn't seem Christie has has a path in this race. His role is what we've always thought his role is, which is to be the one on the debate stage willing to mention Trump's name mm-hmm. um, and willing to lay out the sort of prosecutorial argument about just how bad Trump's legal <laughs> troubles are, um, but but have to have to put put Christie at, at the back of the pack on, on this one. Uh, number f- number five, Tim Scott, mm-hmm. um, and y- you know I I think. Scott's a good example of a candidate who had who had a 
uh, who had a, like a vision for running. Yep, a strong and, and, uh, and had had a a first layer of an argument that was able to gain like some traction. But presidential campaigns are stories, mm-hmm. and he sort of ran out of story to yeah, tell. Yeah, yeah. He he sort of only had an opening chapter. And the story of his candidacy didn't really deepen, um, and so I'm I'm getting pretty close to counting counting him out. Given everything we've discussed on this podcast about the fact that you know there's this race between him and Nikki Haley, and it, it just really seems like Nikki Haley is going to win that race. I think the thing that troubles me is Scott seems intent on uh, hurting Haley on his way out. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, Haley took so much fire in the second, in the second debate, not just from Vivek, but DeSantis from Scott. And again, it's just like, she, she's, she's pulling like a high of like, you know, 15% nationally. Um, well, no, I'm sorry. That, that's like, she's, I think she got a. 18 in Iowa and like yeah, one poll, but Iowa, nationally, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, she's, there may have been a poll or two where she broke double digits, but really, I mean, I, I just saw in the most recent, she had like five nationally. Uh-huh. And so it's like, that's a lot of fire to be training on someone who's, who's, who's at, who's at five. And, and just th- this idea that they're all going to take down the number two and hope that Wild to me. Hope that the number two candidate is then able to prosecute a case against Trump. Well, it's going to be really hard to prosecute a case against Trump if you fractured the non-Trump vote against, you know, yeah. against all these candidates. But of course, they don't care. They're, they're all thinking in terms of self-interest and and just can can they be the Trump alternative? And you're seeing the race now very clearly sort of look like that. And so. Um, I think Scott is is an odd man out on this one, um, especially because he, you know, it would be interesting if if he decided for him to be relevant that he was going to take a more frontal approach to Trump, but he hasn't shown any willingness to do to do that, and so so I have Trump at, at five, um, I have a vacant at four. Okay. Why? Uh, why at four? I think he has a low ceiling. Agreed. Yes. I think he has a low ceiling. Um. And it's just, I think Iowa and New Hampshire are just not not gonna go not gonna go for him. Um. And so, so yeah, I just, I just don't, I just don't see it, and I think he's lost. I can see that, especially in Iowa, with caucusing and with the discussions that happened during yeah. a caucus. No, I just feel like, the, and then New Hampshire is is heavily influenced I mean, by the, what Iowa does, right? Like the counter argument to, oh, the voters in Iowa and New Hampshire are too serious for this, is like, well, you know, Trump emerged out, well, out of the primary, yeah. but but I just, I think because Trump is taking up so much of the disruption, the ridiculousness, energy, yeah, that. Like uh, I can't see Vivek finding finding his own his own way. Um, so Vivek at four, number three. 
going to have DeSantis. Okay, okay. Another month. Another month. Now, folks, you may recognize, I, I think you'll be able to guess who number two and number one are. Yunkin has dropped off the list. We yep. named Yunkin last month. Governor Yunkin... I think of Virginia of Virginia, I think had the right idea, which is that if he was somehow, if Republicans were able to win back the state legislature uh, this past Tuesday on election day, then that would have been such a strong, that would have been such a strong message that, that yeah, maybe you ride that momentum in and you, you announce late. Um, but the reason why it would have been such momentum is because it was really hard to do. And not only did he not do it, but he lost the entire state legislature. So yes. now the entire state legislature um, in Virginia is is Democratic. Um, and so he'll have his own challenges in Virginia. That's right. Now, right, it will be interesting to see, is he able to make some deals? And does he set himself up for 2028 potentially? But... 2024 seems pretty clear he's not going to not going to jump in. But so number 3 I have DeSantis. Now why? Uh, I thought he was much better. I, I thought he actually had a pretty good debate performance. He had a good debate last month too. But, but you just look at the trajectory mm-hmm. and it's you know he's been he's been falling in the polling. Halley has been rising. I think I might put DeSantis in two if he had a clear edge in Iowa. But mm-hmm. actually, all the Iowa polling from this month shows him and Haley running neck and neck. Yep. And so, again, you do, like, this is the scenario, right? Haley gets a surprise second in Iowa. Mm-hmm. At least at this point, I think I'd say that it would be a surprise, just given how much time Scott and DeSantis have spent in the state. Yes. If Haley gets second in, in Iowa... It's very possible DeSantis drops out because I I don't I don't think DeSantis is really banking on New Hampshire. Yeah, and he's not yeah, running yeah, very yeah, strong yeah. in New no, Hampshire. No, I mean there have been stories over the last, about three weeks ago that DeSantis, when he looked at his money again, that he put a ton of staff into Iowa. So clearly, he's putting a lot of his eggs in the Iowa basket. Yeah, because you, you got to think about it. Uh, If if Haley wins number two in Iowa, she'll ride that momentum mm-hmm. into New Hampshire, where yep. she's already doing pretty well. Yes. So she's likely to get second place in New Hampshire as well. Yep. And then South Carolina's on the horizon. Mm-hmm. So like she has a clear one, two, three punch. punch. Mm-hmm. And then maybe she is able to ride that into being a a real contender for delegates on Super Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And then who knows what happens from there. But DeSantis, if even if he gets second in Iowa, Haley could say, look, I knew Iowa wasn't gonna be wasn't gonna be for me. Mm-hmm. She potentially gets second in New Hampshire and then and then uh, you know, South Carolina, you know, is an interesting, interesting state. Now, what I don't know, and honestly, I think the record of Nevada, you know, um, uh, having a strong influence on these on these contests uh, is is actually 
pretty um, pretty pretty limited. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. N- Nevada hasn't really been um, hasn't really been as influential as um, Nevada- as as Iowa, New Hampshire. Like like we just haven't seen swings take place on on the basis of you know what happens in. Um, you know what what happens in in Nevada, so so yeah, so I so that's why I have Haley number two, because well, I see a clearer clearer path to Haley being the Trump alternative than even DeSantis at this point. Even though DeSantis continues to pull more strongly nationally, I think that sort of gets solved. You know, Haley does well in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. Well, I saw a story about a week ago. It was last weekend. Trump and DeSantis went to the same Florida event, and there were multiple reports coming out about how popular Trump was there and less popular DeSantis was, and that he kind of flopped with his speech versus Trump and the reception and the sort of murmurings go around. And I thought to myself last weekend, that is not a good sign at all for DeSantis and his team if in Florida that is the kind of reception that he is getting in his home state. With obvi- Obviously, you know, Trump is popular in Florida. That, that's, that, that's a given. But his own state. The only other thing that I would say is that Governor Kim Reynolds just last week. Correct. Um endorsed DeSantis, right. does she have an effect on that caucus at all, or do you think it's pretty minimal? No, I mean, there's a real advantage there. I mean, I think it is an indication of just how all-in DeSantis is, is in Iowa. In Iowa okay. That yeah. he sort of... And right, like, if he was in a strong position in Iowa, then you'd almost want to hold that endorsement back for a final push of momentum in you know late january or uh you know um or i'm sorry in 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 early january um but the fact that he rolled it out now was seemed to me almost like uh he needs to stay in the conversation and not let haley completely sort of take over and so now there's this there's this reason to stay in at least through iowa for him which is that the governor supports him no, I think it's an interesting decision for Kim Reynolds to use that capital to yeah. endorse mm-hmm. someone whose campaign is is foundering. Um, but but that's uh, frankly, I don't know enough about her her politics yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and, and me, sort of the too. dynamics there. So so you've got Trump at number one. What would you say in terms of where he's at? Where he's at mid November with the first voting January fifteenth in, in the Iowa caucuses. Uh, what could propel him further and what do you think could bring him down? I I think the most, um, the way he gets taken down is Haley completely clears the field after South Carolina at the latest and the legal news, it becomes much clearer to Republican primary voters, even if they think that it's all cooked up and and it's it's Democratic cases or whatever, Democratic judges and whatever, um, it becomes clear in the run up to Super Tuesday how compromised Trump is as a standard bearer for the Republican Party, 
and Haley becomes the beneficiary of that. I think that's most likely scenario, you know, at, at this point. Now, I have to say, like, I expect things to be relatively volatile over the next two, three months. Um, so, you know, we could do, you know, once we get into, into, into January, we could do a, a, a ranking every week and it would be, it would be a reasonable thing to do. Um, we are only promising a month still. Yes. No, we're definitely only doing a month, but, but I just mean in terms of, um, no, I get how much money is going to be spent, how much friction and conflict there's going to be, but, but. But sitting here in this place on, you know, November uh, 12th, uh, 2023, that seems to be the most, the most viable way that Trump loses. Um, I think Trump is the heavy favorite to win the nomination. I think that that's sort of like an unavoidable, unavoidable thing. As I've said on this podcast before, though, it's imperative that we actually let voters speak into this. It's imperative that we not uh, act like it's a foregone conclusion. Mm-hmm. No, it'll be a foregone conclusion when we're counting votes. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, like, let's let's let this thing run out. And with polling having been pretty volatile since 2016. Yes, and again, you know, Trump is persistently under 50 percent in in Iowa. Mm-hmm. So let's see how this field, how this field narrows. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a real chance that like donors play a play a key role here, and that donors actually force, or or not force, but um, exert pressure. So yeah. that DeSantis, you know, again, on this trajectory, so that DeSantis drops out. Obviously, if the if the tables turn, you know, maybe it's it's Haley who's getting, you know, forced to drop. But, like, you know, we'll, we'll see it. We, we could have the, this, um, we could have an Iowa caucus where there are only four, four candidates who are actually running. That, which would be pretty, like, pretty unprecedented. Uh, not unprecedented historically, but certainly if you look at the last three, four elections. Um, and so we'll see how this turns out. But Trump is number one uh, in, in the rankings. And again, until, until these candidates convince voters that Trump is not a winner, nothing is going to change. And the more that they act afraid of him, the more that they act like they're playing for second, the more Trump looks like a winner. The more it looks like Trump has something that the rest of the candidates don't have. Uh, and that is exactly where Trump wants to, wants to be. The last thing I'd say, Melissa, we have, we have talked about this before, but the... the the way in which the Republican, the RNC, has structured things to give Trump just an insane advantage in terms of the pledge for the debates, 
in terms of arranging debate rules in a way that uh, supports Trump. You know, if they were able to add provisions in the debate about uh, or for the debates that, you know, you needed to commit to endorsing, uh, to supporting the eventual nominee, just think of all the other provisions they could have added if they were actually thoughtful or if they if they actually wanted to have a level playing field or if they didn't want uh, to, to be uh, sort of uh, neutered by their very own process. It seems to me like a fair provision would be candidates are not allowed to counter-program our own debates. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know... All the rules have been in Trump's favor in pretty profound ways. And I think as if Trump is the nominee uh, and certainly if Trump loses to Joe Biden, uh, there's there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of focus on the RNC's role in this. Um, And that'll be that'll be something to watch. Yeah, I have, yeah, it's that particular scenario where uh, Trump, it, Biden beats Trump for, for certain. It will be interesting to see what the RNC has to do. The Be the Bridge podcast is a resource from the nonprofit organization Be the Bridge, which was founded in 2016 by bestselling author and leader in the fight for racial justice, Latasha Morrison. Be the Bridge responds to racial brokenness and systemic injustice in our world and believes understanding can move us toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial unity. This podcast is a resource to help cultivate courageous conversations and equip all to flourish. And episodes are released every other Tuesday. So where would we start as a new listener? Noteworthy episodes include a B2B classic episode with Eugene Cho on politics, episode 251 with Jude Free Project's Lisa Fields, Episode 208, The Responsibility of Faith Leaders to Raise Their Voice and Move into Action with Beth Moore. And of course, episode 257, which features our very own Michael Ware, along with Jenny Yang and Catherine Freeman. It's an excellent episode on navigating tense and challenging political climates and voting. Be the Bridge podcast is a podcast worthy of your time. We hope you check it out. We are so happy to be on the That Sounds Fun Network with Latasha and her team. We're gonna end. We're gonna end our discussion of the primary there uh, of the um, the ranking there. Yeah, and we're gonna move into pasta rankings. Yeah. Yeah, let's do pasta rankings real uh, real quick. But it's November. It's a good pasta month. Yeah. So <laughs> I have I have designated November soup month. Yes. Yeah. November is soup month. So I have ranked soup pastas. That's what I've done this month. Number four is a fun one. I really like it a lot just because of the way that it looks, but also it's really good at catching soup bits. It's radiatory, which it's the kind of pasta that looks like the radiator inside of a car, hence why it's called radiatory. Um, To me, it has always looked like ribs. Um, And I don't know. I just like the way that it looks, but it also catches a lot of bits. Um, The next one is pestina, which is a very, very, very tiny, tiny pasta. Um, and it's just excellent for putting meat on your bones kind of feeling. It's, it's delicious. I mean, it's such an Italian staple to put that with some broth. With some broth. Carrot, I love, you know, some carrot slices. And you'll, uh, if you have a cold, have broth with pestina. And uh, you won't have a cold like four hours later. Yeah. 
No, that's exactly it. It's such a good remedy for when you're not feeling well. And then shells, but not the big shells, not the not the uber big shells, but the very little shells. It, this is going to be controversial. Yeah, I know. I know. But, but I love them. They're delicious. But they're like little boats that catch the <laughs> that catch that catch the broth, kind of like the radiatory catches like the bits. Um, and the pastina just kind of soaks up everything. The tiny, I'm talking about like the little shells. I love, oh, I just love little shells in, in soup. And so that's, that's number two. And number one this month goes, and I've ranked this a couple of times before, even in the summer, just because I love this tiny pasta so much. And it's Ditalini. Yeah. It's just the, for me, it is the quintessential Italian soup staple when you're when you're making like a pasta fazool which you made about 10 days ago i asked you it was you, delicious i asked you to make it because you asked me what do you want to eat this week and i said i want to eat pasta fazool so we made that with some ditalini and it's just such a good soup pasta when you're eating something with more than just broth with you know a bunch of different bits and bobs in there yeah um i want to add annalini um this is my ranking i well i i'm gonna speak into it Okay, that's number five. We have five them. Yeah, number so five I'm, is Annalini. <laughs> so I'm gonna add Annalini, which is like a stuffed, uh, a stuffed pasta, um, that's served with broth, and um, and and I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of it. Um, and so you'd also find them. So they're from Parma, but you could also find them in, uh, like, uh, Piedmont and. They're on the menu pretty regularly, uh, regularly there. So, so that would be my contribution. To so, Annalini are usually filled with beef, like beef meat. <laughs> I don't know why I just said that's so funny. It's usually filled with beef. That's the kind of meat. It's and they're kind of with... like discs. Yes, I mean, that's they're kind of they like discs. Yeah. And then agnolati, which is also piemontese. It kind of more like it's, pouches. It's pouches, yeah. and it's filled with. And it's usually filled with pork. Now, see, now what you've done to my ranking is that you've introduced a filled pasta, and next month is filled pasta. So Michael's given you a preview of December, which is the month of filled pasta. Okay. Pasta pocket. Pasta pocket month. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, hey, let's um, let's let's land land the plane here. Uh, hope you enjoyed the return to. Sort of normal episodes. I mean, yeah. we've loved having uh, uh, interviews, um, but we also love just doing episodes. And we know that you love episodes like this. Yeah. Once again, I see, I see all. I see the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> all right, friends. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend. Go Bills. Go Bills. Bills play on Monday night. And, uh, and we'll talk to you for the morning five and, of course, be back with you Next week, this has been Where We Are. Bye.